Let's remind ourselves of where we are going this morning by turning to Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and we'll simply use them to remind us of the importance of the subject before us, which is the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven for us now. And he has been interceding on behalf of his elect for 2,000 years, and he shall continue and he shall see us safely into his eternal kingdom, for that is his desire for our souls, and he will not lose one of them. He is the guarantor, the surety, as the Bible puts it, of our salvation, which includes his presence at the right hand of God. He's able to save us to the uttermost, and he will do so. That is not a practical term. That is a final term, a final phase of salvation, because he is at the right hand of God. His sacrifice will not be lost. We will not be forgotten. He is our mediator and high priest. He is the son of the father, the son of the judge, and he will save us. Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Salvation is the subject under consideration here in Romans chapter 5 from beginning to end. There are some practical aspects of it in the first few verses. But in these two verses, the salvation is from wrath through him. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on this world and we shall be saved from that wrath through him because he is going to stand between an angry God and us. And it is a coming deliverance in which he will stand there. It has been his sacrifice that legally purchased it, but it will be his mediatorship and priesthood that delivers us in that great day. It is called the Lamb's Book of Life. We shall be judged, and the Book of Life shall be opened, and our names being found there, the benefits of his death will be applied. He is the owner of the book, he is the one that was slain to make the names in it the names of God's elect and surely saved, and he will stand there and deliver us in the great day to come. You should be able to look at verse 9 and understand that a future sense, a future phase of God's wrath is coming upon the world, but we're going to be delivered by his life. If his death made a legal payment for us, how much more will his life accomplish in our final deliverance? In the time that we have this morning, I want to quickly go into the intercessory work of Jesus Christ for us. What that means is, what is Jesus Christ doing for us now with God? We started it last Sunday. I want to finish it this Sunday. The New Testament uses the word intercession or intercessions a total of six times. Four of them refer to the work of Jesus Christ that he's presently engaged in in heaven. Those verses should be laid hold of with great faith. Three of them are in Romans 8. They're not here, though these are describing the same work. One is in Hebrews 7 of the four. 
which is four of the total six. Intercession is to go and be a mediator with an offended party, another party, and to plead the case of those that you are representing with that other party. Jesus Christ is doing that. We just read John 17, and I would strongly recommend anyone listening to this sermon would stop it and open their Bibles to John 17 and carefully, prayerfully, and meditatively read those wonderful verses there that show us much of our Lord's intercession for us. And we'll be referring to those words shortly. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. We want to understand, and the Bible wants us to understand, that there is at God's right hand at this hour, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, anointed and crowned with glory and honor, so that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, but he is also a compassionate high priest. He is an effectual mediator and advocate for us. He knows us. He knows our frames. He knows us personally. He knows our trials and temptations. But he also knows the Father. And he prays for us. He assists our prayers. Our prayers gain the ear of God by his name and his intercession for us by himself and by his spirit. He is there working for us right now in a number of ways that we want to consider. His priestly work goes far beyond the cross. That's why we have the words much more in verse 9, much more in verse 10, yea, rather, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. The actual legal payment is not all God has revealed to us about the nature of our salvation. There's more that He wants us to think about than just the death. The blood, the sacrifice, needs to be presented to God. The death of the bullock and the death of the sin-offering goat on the Day of Atonement was insufficient and didn't do a thing by itself. That blood had to be carried in and put on the mercy seat where the presence of God was. And Jesus Christ is in the presence of God pleading His once-for-all sacrifice, presenting it to God. It has been legally accepted, and it is perpetually remembered by the mediator who gave it, who makes intercession for us for our practical deliverance, and who will intercede for us in the great day of judgment. As the apostles understood well, the apostle Paul said, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he did everything I need at the cross of Calvary so that I can live resting on that finished work? No, he never said anything like that about himself or anyone else. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He was looking ahead and with great faith understanding that Jesus Christ had died for him, but was now living for him, and in the great day of judgment would keep his soul that he had committed to him. The Lord Jesus Christ is the keepers, the keeper of the souls of his elect, and he'll not lose one of them. This verse, these verses right here in Romans 5, 9 and 10, reveal the doctrine. This is a matter of revelation. You haven't been to heaven. You haven't seen the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But we know where the Lord Jesus Christ is, and we know what He is doing because of these two verses and others like them. Let's briefly remind ourselves of a few of these, what we would call proof texts. Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. What good would a dead priest be? A dead priest couldn't be engaged in the work of intercession. You say, well, he would have died for us. So the sacrifice has been offered, but it hasn't been presented to God. We need both. Both were necessary under the Old Testament. Both are necessary under the New. Both are described in the Bible. And we lay hold of them by faith because the Bible reveals them. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. And we are wrong to stop there. It is Christ that died. We are thankful that he died for us. He purchased our redemption with the price of his own blood. But the Holy Spirit goes on to say, yea, rather, that is risen again. The Apostle Paul would teach very plainly in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus died for us but didn't rise again, where are we? What is our legal condition before God? Still in our sins. But he died for us. Insufficient. Insufficient. How do we know that it didn't put away him, that our sins weren't so much that it killed him and it was too much for him to bear? He couldn't come back to life. But he came back to life. And because he rose from the dead, it's proof that he conquered sin and its effects in our lives. But yea, rather, it's more than just risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. I want to follow the Holy Spirit. I don't care about church tradition, your ideas or my ideas about what's important. When the Bible says much more, much more, and yea, rather, I want to preach much more, much more, and yea, rather, because there's something he's doing for us right now that is glorious. He died. Sin killed him. But he came back to life, and his life is being put to glorious use as our priest in heaven. If you want assurance of salvation, you will lay hold of this subject. You will learn this subject, and you will love John 17. Did it sound like he was going to lose anyone in John 17? Did he have high ambitions for those in John 17? That they would have the same love of the Father that he had of the Father? That they would be in the same place with him? Did he remind them constantly that they are yours? They are yours, like I am yours. If you lose one of them, it's like losing me. Implied in the words over and over. The repetition bores a carnally minded man. The repetition cheers a spiritually minded man. To see him praying on our behalf. Thank you, Father. Look at Hebrews 7.25. This is the method that we want to use. We want to open and allege what the Bible teaches. And then we'll go into some of its details. Our opening and alleging this morning from the Scriptures is to go to Romans 5, Romans 8, and Hebrews 7 and prove the doctrine by the revelation God's given of it. 
Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, the entire chapter is dedicated to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, as Paul begins to draw the chapter to a close, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. We will always have a high priest in heaven, and that high priest will have the sacrifice of his own blood. And that sacrifice has a never, that priest has a never ending life in order to intercede and remind God who we are and that he wants us in glory with him, beholding his glory and basking in the joy and love of Almighty God, his Father. Just like he prays in John 17. Intercession is praying. Hebrews 7.25 has its best commentary, not in a book written by men, but in John 17, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. We have other verses that we could go to, but because of your excellent memories, you know that we went to them last Sunday. So let's go immediately into considering what he is doing for us. While at times... The description of Jesus Christ's intercession might seem obscure or vague to you. Once we have a revelation, Revelation 5, 9 and 10, 8, 34 and Hebrews 7, 25, then as we look at verses that would be considered circumstantial evidence, we are able to take those verses by the revealed deductive power of his present life and fill them out in our souls and minds. Did you understand what I just said? Though sometimes the descriptions may be a little obscure, once we establish that he is in heaven interceding for us, we can then look at verses, oh, that's what the apostle meant. Because of this established fact, now I see what he's doing, why he's doing, for whom he's doing it, And how long he's going to do it and all the other aspects that we want to learn. This is how we approach the Bible. We have something, we have established truth. Now let's look for its details. Our Lord's intercession depends on his death and and the merits of that death. Don't ever get me wrong. Don't ever hear me wrong. He died for us as a substitute to deliver us from the penalty of the law, which is death. But he lives for us. To guarantee our eternal life as our surety and a whole lot of blessings between now and eternal life by his intercession. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 since you're close by and let's remind ourselves of where he is and why he is there in one of the great purposes. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24 For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. This was comparing what Jesus Christ is doing to the Day of Atonement. We covered that last Lord's Day. I hope thoroughly enough that you have it well established in your minds. John chapter 17. Let's look at it and use it for its design purpose of understanding the intercessory affection and effectual ministry 
of the Lord Jesus Christ for his elect. John chapter 17. There's an introduction. There's a number of verses for his apostles. And there are a number of verses for all that would believe on the word of those apostles, including us. This is truly the Lord's Prayer. What we describe in Matthew chapter 6, our Father which art in heaven, that's not really the Lord's Prayer, that's the disciples' prayer. That was Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray. Those words were in answer to their question, Lord, teach us to pray like John teaches his disciples to pray. Okay, pray after this manner. Our Father which art in heaven, that's how disciples are to pray. John 17 is Jesus Christ's own personal prayer to God in the few moments between the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane. In the moments when he knew by his omniscient mind that Judas Iscariot was receiving his 30 pieces of silver and conspiring to bring an angry, ridiculously stupid mob into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him. He had on his mind all the agonies of the cross, which he knew were coming in full detail, yet for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame and despised it all for you and for me. But with all that weighing on him in the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, this is how he prays for us. I've already read it to you, so I don't have time to read it again. The first five verses, he identifies... Our legal salvation is finished. And I I want all of you that that love the details and want to truly understand this to realize that. Jesus lists his legal work in the first five verses as finished. And appropriately so. Do you think he was going to quit between there and the cross? Is he, like God, able to call those things which be not as though they were? Is he so sure of his death that he's able to say, I have finished the work which you gave me to do before he said it is finished in John 19.30? Was he able to say in words we read a few minutes ago, I am come unto thee when he had not yet gone to be with his father? But he was so sure of his resurrection and ascension that he could speak that way. That's our God. It's just one little tidbit of his power and authority that he can use verb tenses differently than we can do them. Because when we say, I am going to do such and such, we have to say, if the Lord will. Because we don't even know if we're going to be alive tomorrow to do such and such. If the Lord will, and we shall live and do this or that. James chapter 4, not the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want you to get right now with this moment is he identifies the legal work as finished. Well, why did he quit at verse 5? Those who emphasize his death to the neglect of his intercessory work would quit at verse 5. They should quit at verse 5. Because what's the rest of it for? It's his life. It's his life and it involves our practical salvation and it involves our final salvation. And I want you to see that. He he identifies the legal work as being done. It's in verse 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. This is what we believe about the gift of eternal life. There's three gifts 
They're all in the first, second verse. There's no offers and there's no acceptances in the second verse on our part. There's three gifts in verse 2. Thou hast given him power over all flesh. Almighty God gave the Lord Jesus Christ the authority and power over all flesh. He could give eternal life to whomever God had given him. He had authority over all flesh, over the vessels of wrath and over the vessels of honor. That he should give, there's the second gift in the verse, eternal life. Jesus Christ gives eternal life. Jesus Christ does not offer eternal life. He gives it. You don't offer life to a dead man. You must give life to a dead man. And Jesus gives eternal life by the authority given to him by God to those specific personal individuals God had given to him to save. That's the last gift in that second verse. It's a wonderful verse to memorize. You want to memorize a verse about the gift of eternal life that matches up with Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, here it is. God gave Jesus the authority. Jesus gives eternal life. And Jesus gives eternal life to a specific group. Those given to Him by His Father. All in one verse. It's not an offering. The only times the word offered is used is when Jesus offered up His own blood to God. The only acceptance that the Bible knows about is God accepting His offering. So that we are made accepted in the Beloved. You know that was a rabbit trail. So do I. So let's move on and get back to John chapter 17. If Jesus saw his absence from the apostles and it bothered him, and it does, as we know from John 17, and it bothered him that we would be left in this world without him, is that a compassionate priest? Father, I have kept them while I was here. But now it's time for me to come home to you, and I'm leaving them here. Keep them. He calls upon Almighty God to keep us by His power. I kept them while I was here, but now that I'm going away, you keep them. Because I know they're going to experience trouble. The world hates them. Remember John 17, I read it to you, and you read it last night, so I hope these things are coming together for your mind. This is His intercessory prayer. Consider His words carefully. For his prayer, for things the Father already knew and would do. If you wonder, what does Jesus do for us? He prays for things that, yes, they are in a measure certain. But what gives them their great certainty is that Jesus Christ is ever living to guarantee them. And the reason for this in Romans 5, and I tried to make this plain last week, is for the assurance of eternal life. Romans 5, 9, and 10 is for the assurance of eternal life. If Jesus was able to reconcile us to God by his death, how much more will he certainly, definitely, finally, completely, totally save us by his life? So the apostle. That's his intent, Romans 5, 9, and 10. But we want to look at it in detail. Let's review the wonderful prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ made to his father, for us. Now, brethren, please have mercy upon me because I am going to finish at the appointed time and I want you to remember that I preach through this phrase by phrase not too many years ago. And it can be reviewed. 
I want you to remember when it was made. Between the Last Supper in John 13 and Gethsemane in John 18. I want you to know that this represents God's commentary on what His intercessory work is. You can see His affection. You can see His concern. You can see His reasoning with His Father. It is a glorious prayer uttered by the Son of God Himself to His Father. Five verses are about Himself, the first five. The next 16 are about the apostles, though indirectly about us as well. And then five about us specifically. On the night of the greatest drama in world history, the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for you. Everything possible to distract him. Snoring apostles. A betraying apostle. Knowing that all 11 would forsake him. Did he know that? Does he pray like it? Oh, there's so much. Brethren, when Jesus prays to his Father, is half his prayer, these men haven't believed on me while I was among them. They're about to forsake me. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Are you thankful? Are you thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy and his great faithfulness is able to pray for us in a merciful way that we would not pray the same way for someone else? We would want to remind the Lord that they've been rather unfaithful. Because they were snoring. And they were promising Him things they could not and would not keep. Lord, we, we love the mercy of our great high priest. He is compassionate beyond measure. He is the greatest friend you will ever have. That is a ridiculous statement to make. By a factor of infinity. If we take your best friend and multiply it by infinity, how good is the friend that results? An infinite friend. And this is him talking about you in a crisis in his life. Not a crisis that's going to get him in trouble. A crisis of what he was going to give for you. He calls him Father in the first verse. Has there ever been a priest that was the Son of God? Has there ever been an advocate or a counselor? I'm speaking of a lawyer that was a son of the judge. The sustaining strength of Almighty God helped Jesus in His glorious words and actions that night. Just like the strength of Almighty God can help us. It is from this prayer that we know how He prays for us. This is one of the most awful and tender moments in the entire Bible and in the history of the world. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood... He uttered uttered wonderful words of compassion and care for us. He had finished the work which his father gave him to do, yet he prays the next 20 verses. And for those of you that are trying to balance it, I want you to see it. He saw the finished work, but he also knew there were a lot of things that he wanted to flow from that finished work that he was going to obtain for his apostles and believers by his praying, which is what he's doing right now, drawing to us and for us and obtaining for us from heaven the blessings that are in the 17th chapter. I encourage you to love this 17th chapter. If you want to know a spiritual chapter, you want to measure your heart and your soul, then read John 17 carefully and meditatively and see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in it. Verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. Do you understand the holy reasoning? I have preached to you more 
in times past than recently, although I mentioned it recently, effectual praying includes reasoning with God. Throughout the Bible, there are many examples of it. Moses was great and David was great in reasoning with the Lord in prayer. Here's Jesus reasoning with the Lord. He's stating facts. But I want you to remember something. Did God already know these facts? Did Jesus already know these facts? Then why the statement? For you to understand His kind of praying, the appeals that He made to His Father, and for you to understand that holy reasoning was used even by the Lord Jesus Christ. Thine they were. Did God know that? Did Jesus know that? I I know I'm repeating myself. I want you to grasp the power of the words. Because I know that the question arises, what is he doing in heaven since he said it is finished on the cross? This is what he's doing. He's reminding the Father of certain facts that we would want him doing at this very hour. We would want him reminding the Father that the Father chose us and that he chose us in him. We would want that. We have it. Because we have the greatest high priest that you can imagine. You cannot think of a single thing that you would want in a high priest in heaven that Jesus Christ does not fulfill, and then some. Thine they were, and thou gavest them, thou gavest them me. Jesus prayed for the eleven men that accompanied him in his ministry. If you don't have that proved to yourself yet, then you need to go back and study John 17 when I preached it in detail. He is going to move to those that believe on Him through their word in verse 20. But from verse 6 through verse 19, He's referring to the apostles. The apostles were the fathers in that He had chosen them and given them to Jesus. And the Lord Jesus Christ reminds God of that. I want my priest in heaven reminding God that God chose me before the foundation of the world. Now this is to the apostles. But He is going to take what He says about the apostles and shift it that indirectly I have been including those that will believe on me through their word. And then he specifically addresses them at verse 20. They were given to Jesus Christ as apostles. We've been given to Jesus Christ as brethren, which is higher. One is temporary, one is eternal. I mean, however you want to look at it and think about it, Our gift to the Lord Jesus Christ as his brethren, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, is an enormous gift of God to him, of us. He commended the apostles for having kept the word of God in this verse. The last five words, they have kept thy word. Well, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes Jesus had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. (laughs) They have kept thy word. I want a counselor that when he represents me, presents my best side. Because do you know where the, he's not a liar in court. Because he's dealing with the judge of all flesh that knows every thought. But do you know how he's able to present the best side? Because he paid for the bad side. And because if we have confessed our sins, the bad side is gone. And we have to keep getting rid of it almost on a daily basis. But this is my high priest and it's your high priest. Though we read of some of their indiscretions, Our mediator commended them to God. Rejoice in the intercession of Jesus Christ for you. I want to say something here. This is a little bit off the track. Sometimes, and I can say many times, I am disappointed in the Calvinistic commentators that went before us and those who wrote systematic theologies. 
But I will tell you on one subject, they understand it, and it's this one. All our Baptist forefathers that knew their Bibles, I'm not talking about circuit-riding preachers, I'm talking about real preachers, that understood their Bibles and gave themselves. They didn't have other occupations. They poured themselves into the Word of God. When you read their systematic theologies, they will expand this section and lift it up because they know Romans 5, 9 and 10. They know Romans 8, 34. They know Hebrews 7, 25. The reason that I'm so worked up about it is because it's been generally lost today. People think they know all there is to know about the gospel that Jesus died for me. There's more. And it's great stuff. It's wonderful. Revelation. This prayer is wonderful. He put his death in the first five verses and sort of set it aside and opened up a new paragraph. And I want you to see that. And I want you to know what he's doing for you right now by name. Do you think there's a possibility of a chance that he can lose you? You are inscribed in the palm of his hand. He said you are in his hand and who is able to pluck you out of his hand? And he is in his father's hand. And who do you think is going to pluck him out of his father's hand to pluck you out of his hand? This is the certainty of your salvation. He ever lives one second. One nanosecond. I only use second because it's the smallest amount of time you know about. One nanosecond after you die in this world, you will meet your counselor. And your counselor will usher you into everlasting glory. And you will not be afraid. You will be comforted the way he is seeking to comfort you now. Except it will be perfect because you will have shed the thing that causes you your fear. Your flesh. You afraid of heights? You aren't going to be afraid of heights looking down from earth, looking down on earth from heaven. And that's taller than the last three foot ladder you were afraid to get up on. Praise the Lord. He's going to do everything for you. Amen. And he is doing it for us now. Let's go to verse eight. I, I, I could stop on each verse. We could take the next two months to preach on the intercession of Jesus Christ, but I do not want to do that. Verse eight. I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me and they have received them. And have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. My hearers, my brethren, my sisters, my children, my parents in this church, do you believe and have you received the words that the Lord Jesus Christ brought down from heaven and that are recorded for us in the Word of God? If you believe the words that Jesus has written that He came out from God, and that God is His Father, and that He was going back to His Father, and that he, there were many mansions in His house, and He goes to prepare a house for you, if you believe those things, and He's praying for you. That's what He's describing right here. Though the apostles are the particular object of His prayer, notice some of these descriptions apply to us as well. And He's going to summarize that as we get to the end of their section. I pray for them. Verse 9, I pray for them. Which word do you like in there? I like all four. I pray for them. Who's I? The Lord of glory. The King of kings and Lord of lords. The faithful and true witness. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The head of the church and the cornerstone of the church. He's everything. I pray. When we forget to pray... He is praying for us. Because who is forgetting to pray right then that we're being prayed for 
in 14 verses. The apostles were sleeping. Did he ask them to pray? How many times? Three. Can't you watch with me for an hour and pray? So when we forget to pray, this is not an excuse for us to forget to pray, but when we forget to pray, He prays for us. When we're neglectful of prayer, He prays for us. I love the word, I pray. I pray. Which one of those two do you like the most? Four. I want to know what His prayer requests are. He's praying for something. It's them. Not Himself. It's others. When he taught there were two commandments to keep, the love of God and the love of neighbor, he kept that. He knew the love of God and he knew the love of us. I pray for them. Yes, it's the apostles. Indirectly, it's us. 19 and 20 will tell us so. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. And we could, we could work every ver- every word of these verses. For they are thine. I pray for them because they're thine. They're yours, Father. They're yours, Why does he have to keep repeating this? Think with me. Why does he keep repeating this? Does God know they are his? Does the omniscient God know that they are his? Does he really need a reminder? Does he get a reminder anyway for us to understand the assurance of our salvation? You say, well, I wish he'd remind me every day that he saved me. No, the important thing is... You wish, you should wish, that he reminds God every day that he saved you. And guess what? He has. He has. And though God knows, he reminds, and he repeats his reminders to the point of redundancy. If there's one reason that I can list why you have not liked John 17 in the past, it's the redundancy. And I'm going to tell you what, if your heart's in the right place, you will absolutely embrace the redundancy. Jesus reminded his father that the apostles were still his special chosen vessels. Which by holy appeal would move God to consider carefully his personal care of them. They are thine. God doesn't need the reminder. But I want you to consider it well. This is intercession. Intercession is pleading the case of another. Is this perfect intercession? Our counselor and advocate repeats and repeats and repeats good things about us. Our relationship with the Father. Don't forget, Father, these are thine. Sorry for yelling. I'd be happy to sit in my living room with you and go over this prayer at a different decibel level. I'm not mad at any... I'm just mad at at the hard hearts we all have the stopped-up ears and the carnal thinking and the distraction that we all get involved in. This is the King of Kings praying for us. All mine are thine, verse 10, and thine are mine. He's appealing to the relationship that God and He has, have with us. I I can't elaborate. I can't go for it. I am glorified in them. Father... These men glorify me, and I am glorified in them. These believers down there in the Piedmont of the Carolinas, in Greenville, South Carolina, they talk about me, they sing about me, they praise me, I am glorified in them. 
Don't cut off my glory. Bless them. Help them. Strengthen them. Do you want this prayer for you? Glorify God. Simple enough, isn't it? Let's speak of Him. Sing of Him. Tell others of Him when it's appropriate. Because then we fit into John 17 and He prays for us. Verse 11. Brethren, I could stop on every clause and every word and we would be in this thing until the end of the year. I wish you would go home and consider this prayer very carefully and think about the fact that God already knows these things. Jesus already knows these things. Why does he keep repeating them? What is the intent for us to know this prayer? And I want you to read it in a Bible with red letter edition for the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I told Sherry, my wife, she's my wife, I told Sherry last night that... I hate my Oxford when I get to John 17. I don't care about the red letters anywhere else. But when I read John 17, I want it being hammered into me that these are the words of my blessed Savior praying for me. Amen. Verse 11, I'm no more in the world. Now, he was in the world. He was in the world for another 36 hours or 24 hours or 36. Don't worry. Don't count it right now. The math is rusty. I'm no more in the world, but these are in the world. See, he could speak in the future tense. He could use the present tense to describe a situation that was not quite yet true because he was going to heaven. And I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Let them be united on earth as we are united in heaven. And Father, I've been with them, but I'm no longer with them. I'm coming to you, Father. So you are going to have to put forth almighty divine power to keep them. I like that. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Is it appropriate to pray to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the Apostle Peter, when he was sinking into the water, did not say, God in heaven, creator of heaven and earth, the heavens, the sea, and all that in them is. Rescue me from drowning. He said, Lord, save me! The woman of Canaan, when the disciples tried to rebuff her from approaching the Lord Jesus Christ for her daughter that was vexed with the devil, said, Lord, help me! Stephen said when the stones were crushing the last bit of life out of his body, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for praying for us. Our unity is through the name of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Blood is thicker than blood. And Jesus Christ wants us to all be united here. Anyone anyone that creates the least little dissension or difference in this assembly is an antichrist. Jesus knew a grave danger facing the apostles was their isolation in a wicked world of wicked men. But he prayed for the Father to take care of them. He had kept them all and hadn't lost one except Judas Iscariot that the word of God might be fulfilled. He had kept them from harm. In verse 12, our Lord Jesus had kept them by example, by instruction, by correction, by warning, and by pure power. He had preserved them from the world. He says in verse 13, Now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. One of the things he prays for, and the only reason you don't have it, is because you are living out of fellowship with God. You are too much in love with the world, which offends him. You have competitors to the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. 
This is a prayer that he made that his joy, this is verse 13, I come to thee and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I want them to have my joy. How much joy did Jesus Christ have? He could endure the cross and despise the shame, knowing that the right hand of God, there were pleasures forevermore, and he would be crowned with glory and honor to so far exceed the little pain of the cross that it was a happy trade for him. And he wants us to have that joy. And we have that joy if we believe on him and we have confessed our sins so that his prayers for us are not hindered by our sins. He wants my joy fulfilled in themselves. Isn't, isn't that a wonderful counselor? Amen. A counselor that is rescuing the dregs of the universe and says, I want them to be as happy as me. Judge, Father, do whatever it takes to make them as happy as me. I don't know how to describe it to you. The world's hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Father, I want you to remember that these men that I've left down here, they are not of the world. I know you hate the world. I know you hate the world and its lifestyle. You hate the world and its thoughts. You hate the world and its entertainments. You hate the world and its religions. You hate the world. I know that, Father. And you know that I'm not of the world, but they're not of the world either. They have left the world to follow me. Take care of them. That's verse 14. Verse 15. I'm not praying that you should take them out of the world. I know you could bring them all home right now. You could bring them home with me. There could be an ascension of 12, Jesus plus 11. But I'm not asking you to do that, Father. I'm asking that you would keep them from evil, the evil, while they're here in the world. Protect them from the devil. Protect them from the world's influence. This is the prayer of Jesus Christ. This is intercession. These are prayer requests you should be thankful that He's making for you. If He was to stop making them and say, Father, let them go, you have no idea what you're capable of doing in one nanosecond of time. There are things we would repudiate and say, I would never do that. If the Lord Jesus Christ were to take away His restraining grace, you would do that with glee and zeal. Verse 16, they are not of the world. I thought he already said that. Did he already say that? Okay. Then we understand he's reasoning with his father and he's repeating himself in a way that we should delight in. Verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Does he pray that we will get blessings out of the preaching of God's word, that it will change our lives and make us holier? He prays that for us. Where does sanctification come from? It comes from the word of God. And hearing the word of God preached. Verse 8, I can't stop. Verse 18, I'm so far behind now, I'm disgusted with myself. Verse 18, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so I've sent them into the world. Notice the comparisons. You sent me, I'm sending them. Father, notice the similarities. You were worried when you sent me. Not worried, you know what I'm, you were concerned when you sent me. Be concerned about me sending them. Verse 19, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself. I have lived a holy and virtuous life that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Jesus gave them an example, the perfect example of a holy and righteous and sanctified life in order for them to be sanctified. Verse 20, neither pray I for these alone. My prayer is not just for those eleven, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. 
whatever in the previous 14 verses applies to the believers of the apostles, Jesus prayed for them. But now he's going to utter some things specifically for them. The Lord of glory prayed for you 2,000 years ago. You say, well, I didn't even exist. Oh, you existed in the purpose and counsel of God. And Jesus Christ had already died for you and was going to the cross for you personally. He knew you, though you did not know him. He loved you, though you did not yet love him. Father, my prayer is that they all may be one. Verse 21, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. The world may believe that thou hast sent me. Holy Father, I want you to create a union with them and me and them and you and you and me and us with them in such a way that it will be visible by their changed lives and their unity with heaven that you sent me to die for them and not for the world. Let them be crucified into the world and the world crucified unto them. But show the difference and show the union that we all have together. And Father, verse 22, the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one, one family of God. The glory that the, Jesus Christ had given the apostles and had given all believers was sonship. What glory had God given Jesus on earth? Remember, he's already started this prayer off by saying, I'm looking forward to the glory that I once had. What glory did he have on earth? Thou art my beloved son. I've preached this before in detail. I've gone through every other possibility in the New Testament of what that glory could be. It's the glory of sonship. And see, Jesus had taught that. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. So we're all in one family. We're all in a similar relationship to God, so that Jesus Christ is the firstborn among many Brethren, behold, I and the children which God hath given me, Jesus said in Hebrews 2.13. Verse 23, I am them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Let there be perfect unity. Father, with you, with me, what's between us? Let it be between us and them. Let it be between them themselves and us. Perfect unity. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them. As thou hast loved me. And there's a day coming, brethren, in which the whole universe will know that God set his love upon us and sent his son to die for us and not the rest. For the glory of God for eternity. Father, verse 24, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. This is final phase of salvation. Father, I want these believers that are going to believe the words of the apostles about me to be with me where I am. Father, if you want to receive me into heaven, if you're going to take me into heaven at my ascension, I want them with me. It's all or none. Right. Did Moses ever say that? Was Moses faithful in all his house? Did Moses say, if you will not have mercy upon the nation, then blot me out of your book? The Lord Jesus Christ said, I want them to be where I am. 
There's as much, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe the words that He has sent and believe that He came out from God, if you believe those things, there's as much chance of Jesus Christ losing eternal life as you. He is your surety. We go down together or we live together if you can't get the word one yet out of this prayer. We are together. That is an attorney committing himself all the way. He died for us. Now he lives for us, and he has committed himself all the way. What kind of a retainer fee did you have to pay? It's our reasonable service to give him our bodies a living sacrifice. Father, I will that they also, to whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. I want them to be able to see what you've done for me. But do you know what the Bible says? That we are going to be like him, for we are going to see him as he is. That's First John chapter 3. I have declared unto them thy name. This is the last verse, verse 26, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them. Praise the Lord for John chapter 17. It says so much for us. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who maketh intercession for us. Son, be of good cheer. You want to know what Jesus does in his intercessory work? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. When a man is brought to him with the palsy by four friends. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. That's the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not of good cheer this morning, and you have sincerely and humbly confessed your sins, then you by faith are missing the message of the gospel. Son, daughter, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. You say, yes, I believe he died for sins. Do you believe he died for your sins? Yes, I believe he forgives sins. Do you believe he forgives your sins? Thy sins. I hate our modern English. Let's use high English in this church from now on. Thy sins. Thank you, Lord. Satan hath desired you that he may sift you as wheat. Plural. All the apostles. But I have prayed for thee, Peter, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. You say, there's too many of us for him to be concerned about me individually. You're forgetting the Lord Jesus Christ. In the press of a, thro- in the press of a throng, when a hundred people were jostling him, right. could he stop and say, who touched my garment? Yes. Exactly. In the previous three seconds, a total of 13 people had touched his garment. Who touched? What did the, what did the disciples say? They had as much faith as you. Lord, Lord that's a ridiculous question. Who touched my garment? What had already happened to the poor woman? Praise the Lord. That is your intercessor. I don't care how many are calling upon him. I prayed for thee. That is one of, I love the difference between the you and the thee in Luke chapter 22. Verse 32. He has power to help. Even when he was humbled on earth, he had power to help. But you know what he said before he ascended back to heaven? All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. You apostles, you know we've had it rough the last three and a half years, even here among our own people. 
It's going to be real rough when you go out there into the world, but all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye on that basis. I have much people in this city. Thank you, Lord. He loves his churches. He comes to them in Revelation chapters 1 through 3 and comforts them, exhorts them, warns them, rebukes them, defends them. He gives spiritual blessings, the spirit of his own son. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the head of the church for the church so that we might receive all the blessings that he's able to bring us. He's the only one able to take the book out of the hand of Almighty God. Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful he's able to take the seals and rip them off that book? And when he ripped the seals off that book, tremendous things happen in earth. And in that book is the everlasting covenant in your name. And he ripped it off because he is your mediator. He's going to deliver you in the end. Now unto him that is able. Yes. To present you faultless before his presence with exceeding great joy. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. I pray that Onesiphorus, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I pray for Onesiphorus. It may be chapter 1. Let me go check it out for you. Please forgive me. The Lord give mercy. It's chapter 1. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus. The Lord grant unto him that he, find, that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. Notice, the apostle is looking to that day. He's appealing to the Lord Jesus Christ to have mercy on him in that day. Was God going to have mercy on Onesiphorus in that day? Of course. But notice even the apostle calling on his intercessor to make sure that Onesiphorus was taken care of in that day because of the kind way he had taken care of the Apostle Paul. And Paul said to Timothy, Thou knowest altogether well what this man did for us. There's so much more that could be said. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Are you persuaded this day? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the great condition given in John 17? Or the great description in John 17 for us to be in that chapter. They have believed that thou hast sent me and that I came out from God and they have received my words and have surely believed that I came from thee. Do you surely believe this day that Jesus Christ came from God and truly is the Son of God? John 17 is for you and John 17 is being prayed for you at this hour in a language you know not. And with an appeal to his Father and the judge of all flesh that we can only scratch the surface of, we have such a Savior. Amen.